The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. So last week we began talking about the leading of the Holy Spirit as displayed through the book of Acts. And to sort of recap, we started with the opening chapter of the book of Acts. Because right at the very beginning, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we, we hear the purpose for which God has given the Holy Spirit. We, we see that the Holy Spirit was given for the express purpose of us carrying the mission of, the, of God, the gospel, forward into the world. That the Holy Spirit was the thing that the disciples were supposed to wait for before they went on mission for the Lord. Because the third person of the Trinity, God himself, is invested in the bringing forth of the gospel to those who have not heard it and to those who are far from him. He is personally invested. Think about the amazing reality of the Trinitarian work in the gospel. God the Father, from before the creation of the world, conceives all that will take place in creation and how things will get messed up and what will be broken. He partners with the Son in the plan of redemption and, and, and the plan from the very get-go, from, from chapter 3 of the Bible, we see this promise that God is going to send his Son to deliver mankind from sin. And then the, sin, the Son comes. And he incarnates himself. He, he puts on, adds to himself human nature in order that he might be a sacrifice for sins, in order that he might be an accurate representation of the true nature and character of God, in order that we, we might know who God is. And, and despite all of the suffering that it would bring and despite all that it would cost him to humble himself and be found in fashion as a man, God comes down in his son, meets with us, dies the death we deserve on the cross, is raised again from the dead, and ascends to take his throne once again next to the Father. And then comes the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has always been present in the world, but in a special and new way, God begins to inhabit his people with profound influence and power. The word that the Bible uses for the power of the Holy Spirit is dunamis. It's the same word, root Greek word, where we get our, our word dynamite. It's like explosive power, right? For what purpose? To what end? In order that God might save. Now, the Holy Spirit does an immense amount of work in the lives of believers. The Holy Spirit is a teacher, reminding us of the truth that Jesus taught. He's an author, writing for us uh, scripture for the benefit of every generation. He's an engine, giving supernatural strength, and an intercessor, pleading with the Father on our behalf. The Bible tells us that he's a comforter, that he's encouraging us through seasons of affliction. That he's an examiner highlighting for us areas where we need to be convicted and change and grow. Telling us again and again how it is that we should run to Jesus, who's mighty to save. 
He's a cultivator producing fruit in our lives as we are being changed to look like Jesus. The Holy Spirit is doing all kinds of things in the life of a believer and in the world. And while all of this is true, the Bible is clear that God sent the Holy Spirit specifically in order that we might become witnesses to the gospel. That list of things that the Holy Spirit does are always to serve God's saving purpose. They're not for Holy Spirit goosebumps and special experiences, although those things are wonderful and well and good. They're not for, you know, getting God's will uh, accomplished in such a way where we can command the Holy Spirit in some sort of, like, some sort of, uh, you know, force energy and make miracles happen. No, as a matter of fact, it's the opposite of that. We're surrendered to the authority of the Holy Spirit and we're subject to his leading versus us commanding him where to go and what to do. So we started out our conversation about the leading of the Holy Spirit, talking about how the purpose of the Holy Spirit has always been for God's saving work in the world. And we highlighted a few ways that the Holy Spirit led the apostles. First of all, he led through leadership and planning. Chapter 15, God stirs up the heart of the apostles to go and visit the churches that they've already visited and to bring the letter from the council at Jerusalem to tell the Gentiles that they don't have to be circumcised in order to become Christians. He leads also through differences in conflict. Remember, Paul and Barnabas separate from one another and they they both have different ideas of of, of what is most needful in ministry and they're both right and they're both wrong. Our head goes with Paul, but our hearts go with Barnabas to minister to John Mark. But in the differences of focus and gifting, there's conflict, but God just multiplies the work in spite of the conflict that is there and accomplishes his purpose. The Spirit's leading even in their weakness through closed doors and open doors. And we saw in the first part of chapter 16 that that the Spirit forbade the apostles from going south and from going north. And then he pinned them in Troas. And then God gave a supernatural vision to Paul of a man from Macedonia saying, hey, come on over and help us out. And so, in obedience to that vision, they set out. And they make their way towards Troas and eventually to Philippi. So sometimes the Holy Spirit leads not only through leadership and planning and through differences and conflict, but through closed doors and open doors. And through the natural and through the supernatural. Through the expected and through the unexpected. Remember, Paul gets to Philippi and when he gets there, he lands on the ground expecting to see what? A man from Macedonia. That's his, his thought. I'm like, That's the vision that I had, right? But when he shows up, there's not even 10 men who are of, uh, uh, that are practicing Jewish uh, believers in that town. And so only the women are gathered together at this prayer meeting by the river. And that's where he runs into Lydia. And there he begins to preach the gospel and proclaim Jesus as the Messiah that God has always promised. Lydia gets saved and her entire household this affluent woman who's a seller of purple, a businesswoman, and she opens up her home to house the first church. 
Paul expected a man. What he found was a women's ministry. Paul expected to, to plant some huge thing, and instead it was a house church. Paul expected that, that, that God was going to work in a specific way, but, but as he's going, the Spirit is doing something different. The Spirit is saving Lydia in order that he might lay a foundation for the church that would be built at Philippi. As we continue through the text here, we're going to see that God not only leads through the expected and unexpected, but through spiritual and through physical opposition. So we pick up our story in verse 16, where it says this, as we were going to the place of prayer, remember Paul met Lydia at the place of prayer, they were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. So, first thing, uh, this girl is demon-possessed. In the Greek language here, it says that she actually has a a spirit of pythona. Uh, This is not much... This is not mean much to most of us, which is probably why the translators, you know, drop the language. But to the Greeks, it meant something in, in particular. Uh, the, the, the pythona was a certain kind of snake or a dragon, and it's used here because the python was associated with the god Apollo, and he had a temple not far from Philippi uh, in this very area of Europe. In Greek mythology, this was the name of the Pythian serpent or, or the dragon that dwelt in the region of Pytho at the foot of Par, uh, Parnassus in Phocis and was said to have guarded the oracle at Delphi and to have been slain by the god Apollo. So there's a, a direct understanding that this, this Python spirit that, that has a hold that, of this slave girl is somehow an oracle that is representing the Greek gods. Now, today, when we think of fortune tellers, we think of, you know, people that are tricksters and hucksters and, you know, kind of are always using trickery to, to deceive the simple-minded or to deceive people that are, that are caught up or prone towards believing in superstition. And probably, for the most part, I would say that that's true. Uh, But we see here that in this particular case, and and in some cases today, that it is not just trickery. That there is actually something spiritual at its root. Something demonic that is taking place. That its true origin is supernatural, as opposed to clever, insightful guessing. And there are still those today who uh, are possessed, I think, with the spirit of divination. Sometimes, you know, I, I, I see some of the uh, uh, popular magicians and stuff that make it on, on television. And, and there's some you're like, oh, yeah, it's sleight of hand. Or that's the normal stuff that you normally see. And then there's some that you're like, whoa, what is that? And, and it makes you wonder, like, how, how much of this is sleight of hand and how much of this is, is actually supernatural or, or being influenced or controlled by demonic forces or entities. 
So uh, this gal is a slave girl, and the people who own her make a lot of money off of her. Because she has this spiritual entity that is, that is somehow manipulating uh, reality or the truth or is bringing about details that she shouldn't know because these spiritual beings are, are providing supernatural information to her in some way. She's owned by some people that are simply sort of spiritually prostituting her out for gain. And... She comes behind Paul as they're making their way to the place of prayer through the agora, which is like this marketplace. It was the, it was the local place where everybody set up shop to sell all their wares and sell you know, whatever goods they could grow or whatever crafts that they had. As they're making their way through the agora, she follows Paul around crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, at first glance, it seems like good advertising. I mean, if you think about it, you know, here's this person, uh, maybe like, I, I, I guess I would imagine it sort of like this. Have you ever seen the people that are dressed in the, uh, the liberty uh, tax thing, right? And they're, they're out on the street, and they're, they're, the point of that, the goal of that, is to let you know that there is a tax place close by so that you know exactly where it's at. Because every day you pass them, you're like, wow, there's a person in a Statue of Liberty suit twirling a sign. I could get my taxes done there. Right? So in my mind, I, I think that this is kind of real similar to that. It's, it's like that. Every time he rolls through town, there's a gal who's this demon-possessed gal who's a fortune teller, and everybody knows that she has this supernatural ability, and she's saying, these guys are bringing the message from the Most High God. It seems like a good idea. It seems like good advertising. But what we'll see here is that Paul gets annoyed with it. This girl followed Paul and, and cried out these things, uh, affirming that the message was from God, but, but was that actually helpful to the overall ministry? Let me give you an illustration that might help with this a little bit. Imagine if Playboy came to Medford and said, hey, we heard about your church. We'd love to do a write-up on it. We'd like to do an article. We'd interview the pastors and, and kind of like get them their opinion. You guys are doing great work throughout the city and, and in the world. And, and, and we just, we would love to give you credit for all that is being done here at Heritage. We go, that's nice. Uh, thank you. But no thank you. And not because the message isn't true. And, and not because what we're doing is somehow something we should be ashamed of or that we don't want to see promoted in the world. We want Jesus to be made famous, right? But the mouth of the messenger matters. The mouth of the messenger matters. It might be tempting to think that it would be good for us to do that because the church is getting recognition where, where those who are held captive by sin are. On the other hand, the voice that delivers the message and gives approval of it is also the voice that desires to keep those people in bondage. 
The advertising is great, but it also gives approval from the church to what is happening. So Paul's in conflict. He's like, okay, she's proclaiming the right things. She's saying all the right things. But I'm not sure she's great advertising for the mission of God. She's a demon-possessed slave girl. So, verse 18. And this she kept doing for many days. I want you to just take note of that. Paul didn't just get angry right away. At first it was like, oh, okay. (laughs) Maybe not quite sure what to do of it. And then day two happens. Like, okay, this is strange. Then day three happens. And every time he sees her, now he's trying to dodge her in the marketplace. Like, oh, there's that girl again. Let's, let's go over this way, right? He's like making his way through the orange aisle and ducking behind signs. This awkward encounter always happens. She finds him again. And, and it says, Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. The scripture says here that Paul became greatly annoyed. Isn't it nice to know that you can be annoyed and that it's spiritual? (laughs) It just depends on what it is you're annoyed about and why. I mean, there's people get annoyed over stupid stuff like traffic and, you know, how slow the internet is and, you know, things like that. But Paul's annoyed because he's got a job to do for the sake of the kingdom. And this gal, rather than being a help, is a hindrance. Or maybe he's annoyed that the enemy was trying to hijack this girl for his purposes. He saw her enslavement. Maybe he's annoyed at the owners as well who've taken advantage of this poor enslaved gal who's possessed by a demon. He's apparently annoyed with the whole situation. Finally, he just, in in, in a moment of frustration and annoyance and anger, he turns around and he casts the demon out. And immediately, at at that very hour, the demon comes out of her. And when the owners of this girl see that they are now going to lose money on her because she's been freed of this demonic influence, then they go after Paul physically. Verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they're, they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, Luke was a Gentile and Timothy was was only half Jewish, but Paul and Silas look very Jewish. 
And there was a strong anti-Jewish sentiment that lay, near, lay very near the surface in pagan antiquity, according to F.F. F. Bruce. And the objection was that these men were, Jew, that these men were Jews. And it's, it's really interesting that uh, the Jewish community in, in Philippi was really small to begin with. Remember, there wasn't even 10 men in order to be able to build a synagogue. So they, they were not well-liked in that city. And so... Uh, these businessmen who've been pimping out this young enslaved girl for money because of her spiritual uh, influence, because of her demonic possession, they bring Paul and Silas uh, before the magistrate. Now what ensues is just a, you know, just mob justice. Uh, what happens is people already don't like this group this ethnic identity that's in their presence to begin with. Second of all, they're losing money, right? They're, they're motivated by the fact that, like, you just, you just killed my business. I had a good thing going here with your, you know, proclamation of Jesus. And, and, and now I'm out some money. I'm out income. It doesn't matter that they helped a slave girl to be freed of a demon. The bottom line for them was the bottom line. And so they, they say, hey, these guys are advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. So then the crowd joins in and attacking them and, and, and the magistrate tears his garments in a show of like emotional frustration and anger. He's just like, rip, I'm so angry about this. About what? That a gal was, was delivered from some demonic influence? It just goes to show the hardness of heart that can happen when we set our affections on money, influence, when we allow our prejudices to say these people are out and these people are in or these are the good people, these are the bad people. There's all kinds of warnings throughout the scriptures. Not discarding humanity. And because these are the bad people, the Jews, we can basically do whatever we want with them. That's kind of the thinking of the mob. And so they, they began to attack them and tore the garments and gave orders and beat them with rods and inflicted many blows upon them and threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. So they, they grabbed sticks and they beat Paul and Silas publicly. Now, I have at times preached the gospel in rough places. Uh, I can remember actually Ashland at one point. I, I went to go do some street witnessing in, in Ashland. I'm sharing the gospel there. And, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm talking to this guy who was a very Ashland E type of a person and uh, he's got dreadlocks and so I'm just I'm trying to like interact with him and I don't appearance isn't the issue but I'm, I'm setting kind of the stage right and, and so we're, we're, we're dialoguing and I start to talk to him about Jesus he's very offended at the name of Jesus and he's just like right up in my face yelling at me screaming at me 
And I'm like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm just here to explain to you what the gospel means, right? Why it is that Christians consider this good news. And uh, in a moment of anger and frustration, he just hawks a, a loogie and just spits it right in my face from, you know, we're like right here. Now, I still have quite a bit of hood in me at this point <laughs> in my life, right? And like everything in me is like elbow this guy right in the face for the glory of God. Fortunately, the Holy Spirit took control. I swallowed down my pride. I wiped the spit from my face, and I looked him square in the eyes, and I said, hey, here's the bottom line. If you don't repent of your hardness of heart, you are going to end up in hell. And I felt very justified in the moment saying that. I went and I sat down on the park bench to like let my nerves calm down because I was literally shaking, right? So I'm sitting down on this, this bench and I'm like, Phew. and I, I grab, I had a little pocket Bible, um, King James at the time, and I, I opened it up and I began to read. I'm in Proverbs. And as I open it up, the, the verse that my eyes fall upon, no kidding, is a verse from Proverbs that says, hell and destruction are before the Lord's eyes continually. How much more the hearts of men. And the Lord just convicted me in that moment. Jeremy, you know, you throw hell out as though it's, it's you know, some threat or some justify. I see hell with my eyes. I made it. I know what is there. And I know the destination that is waiting for those who are not saved. I see what is coming with clarity. And I care about that guy's heart. It's not just a meaningless threat to throw out. See, in spite of all that is happening to God's people, Paul is being beaten with rods. Silas is being smacked across his entire body with sticks, and the crowd is tearing them to pieces. But God says, those souls matter to me. Those souls are worth that. They're worth that amount of suffering. They're worth what it takes to reach them. They matter to me. And Paul, Silas, that's why I sent you here. So, at first glance... It seems like this is kind of a bad deal. It, it, it looks as though their efforts in Philippi are sort of a loss. They get beat up. They get thrown in prison. And the jailer, having received his order, puts them into the inner prison and fasten their feet in stocks. Stocks were like these boards with holes in it. And so when you fasten your feet, what you would do is you would, they had multiple holes. You'd stretch a person out to the most uncomfortable position that you possibly could and then just lock their feet into these boards. It was a, a form of torture. 
He puts them in the inner prison. You think like dungeon. Outer prison still had like air and, and movement. This is like no light and a terrible place to land. It would be easy for Paul and Silas in this moment to, to like go, God, what are you doing here? <laughs> like we just, we wanted to follow you and we thought that like following you meant that like things would be awesome. Things would be like great and we would show up, revival would break out, people would be like, we're so glad you came. They'd be like, carry us on their shoulders, like, you know, fist pumping to Jesus. But here they are in prison in stocks for the sake of the gospel. Because God is driven to bring the gospel to the hard-hearted. To those that are even his enemies. Now, Jewish tradition held a, a, a maximum number of blows that could be delivered when beating a person, but the Romans had no such limit. When we simply know that Paul and Silas were severely beaten. And Paul would write later in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three. he would say, In labors I have labored more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths more often. He's like, this is just normal life as an apostle. So they put him in stocks. I, lo- I love this quote from Tertullian. He says this, The legs feel nothing in the stocks when the heart is in heaven. See, Paul and Silas, they had such a vision of the reality of the resurrected Christ that the discomfort of this life was not worthy to be compared with the glory of knowing Jesus and being with him forever. So on the outside, it seems like a loss, but but God is doing something that they could not have anticipated. They are being witnesses like Jesus promised that they would be, both in their spiritual battles and overcoming demonic forces, and even in their physical opposition and their suffering. And as we'll see, their presence in prison ends up only serving God's purposes even further. So here's the point. Sometimes, guys, the Holy Spirit leads us into conflict, into hard seasons. Somehow, I don't know if this is an American thing, somehow this, this got into my heart, this gets into my heart regularly. I have to fight it, right? Which is if, if God is into something, that, that the, the, the end result is going to be good feelings and positivity, But if there's anything that we can see right here from the text, that sometimes when God is leading, it doesn't lead you into good feelings and positivity. It leads you into prison and discomfort, trials and hardship, difficult things. Sometimes the Holy Spirit leads us into conflict rather than out of it so that the surpassing greatness of the worth of Jesus can be revealed. The Holy Spirit led Paul to free the slave girl and everything that would happen as a consequence. In the same way that the Holy Spirit, remember, led Jesus, drove him into the wilderness in order that he might be tempted of the devil. The the Holy Spirit led Jesus 
to suffer for 40 days at the hands of the enemy, not having food, to be tempted, to be tried, tested, buffeted by the enemy. That was the work of the Holy Spirit. Be careful of the power of positive thinking that has come into, that has permeated the church. That says, the point of knowing God and loving God is to have your best life now. That's hogwash. That's the most stupid, asinine thinking that could possibly be out there. What do we do with the scriptures? Every single apostle gave his life for the cause of Christ. They all suffered. Well, John, I guess, John died in old age, but first they boiled him in oil. They all suffered for the cause of Christ. That, like, that is the normal expectation for the first century church. And to think that the point of the gospel is so that you can have your best life now is such shallow thinking in comparison to the depth and the treasure of knowing Christ and loving him and serving him no matter what it costs you. So sometimes the Spirit leads us into spiritual opposition and physical opposition. Sometimes he leads through faith and faithfulness. Notice what the Holy Spirit does in Paul and Silas as they're in prison. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. <laughs> I love this. Oh, man, these guys are so awesome. Like, you think about just this reality. Here they are, they just got, you know, I, I have never been beaten with a stick right? I'm, I'm assuming they've got massive amounts of bruises, gashes, open wounds. Then to top it all off, they drag them into the inner prison to this dungeon. They spread their legs apart to virtual splits and then lock them into some boards so that they cannot have any relief. And they can't sleep, right? They're on this stone floor in the middle of a dungeon with their feet locked up in a very uncomfortable position. They can't sleep and they're like, well, we can't sleep. What should we do? <laughs> I guess we'll sing. I guess we'll sing praises to God. Just imagine that for a moment. Just imagine. It's dark. It's after midnight. Many of the prisoner, prisoners are falling in and out of sleep due to the uncomfortable conditions. Their sleep's not restful. The only sounds that you're hearing in the middle of the night are the occasional cough or clearing of the throat, the rattling of chains as they drag across the floor. It's echoey because it's stone walls. You hear people moaning in discomfort, restless. And then all of a sudden, in the still, in the blackness, in the cold of it all, A sound just cuts through the silence. Praise to God from whom all blessings flow. 
And they just start singing. Just start worshiping. Singing songs of praise to God in the darkest, darkest moment. Think about the faith of these men. We're told earlier in the book of Acts that when the apostles were beaten, that they thanked God that they were found worthy to suffer for the kingdom. They thanked God for the beating. Please, sir, may I have another? That's how valuable Jesus is to them. That's how valuable the kingdom is to them. And in this moment, because Paul and Silas see the surpassing value of the kingdom, they begin to praise God in the most difficult of situations. I wonder what was happening in the minds of the prisoners that were close enough to hear Paul and Silas. I wonder, I wonder what the guards thought of it as the music comes ringing through from the belly of the dungeon. We don't know how long this carried on, but in the middle of the worship session, God stages a breakout. Verse 26. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. So this worship session continues and the the Bible says in verse 25 that all the prisoners were listening to them. They're just like, what are these guys doing, right? We don't know how long that happens for, but, but all of a sudden, an earthquake breaks out. Now, the earthquake in and of itself is not, you know, it, it's a big event, but not necessarily something that you would attribute to the supernatural. But when every door pops open and every chain falls off of every prisoner, there's no doubt that something supernatural is happening as Paul and Silas sing praises. Hey, by the way, I just want to throw this out. This is allegorizing scripture a little bit, and I hope you'll just give me some liberty And that. There are dark seasons that we go through. And I just, I want, sometimes the songs that we sing and the praise that we give is an act of faith. Not because you feel it, in the moment, but because you know that these realities are true no matter what it is that you're going through. And sometimes, guys, the way out of that funk, that spiritual desert that you are in, is not in greater disciplines, but in greater enjoyment of God. Drawing our heart to focus on who he is and the surpassing Riches, the glory of knowing him and loving him and following him. Sometimes we have to make our hearts do that as an act of faith. Well, the chains fall off. The doors are opened. It's a supernatural event. And then we read verse 27, when the jailer awoke, he saw that the prison doors were open. He, he drew his sword, and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Now, the jailer was about to kill himself. He did this for good reason. Under Roman law and custom, the guards were allowed, uh, who allowed their prisoners to escape, received the penalty of their escape prisoners. So whatever that prison sentence was for that person, that prison that sentence was given to the jailer who allowed them to escape. So he's like, everybody's gone. I'm out of here. Right? He's like, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go through 
what is about to take place. And so he pulls out his sword and is about to off himself. And Paul intervenes. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So God frees them miraculously, and they stay put rather than run to freedom. Now, it would have been easy for Paul and Silas to escape, thinking, oh, well, look at what God did. He opened the doors, and that must mean God wants us to leave. (laughs) Right? That would be my tendency. But they have a feeling that God's got purpose in this. There's something that he's doing. And so, instead of running, instead of escaping, they stay. They hear that somehow they, they understand that the jailer is about to off himself and, and Paul cries out and says, hey, hey, don't do it, don't do it. We're all still here. We haven't left. We're, everything's good. We're, we're here. The lives of others were more important than their own personal freedom and comfort. They, the unsaved people that were in that place were more important than their own personal comfort and freedom. And this is the amazing thing about it. Paul and Silas stay for the jailer, the one who would imprison them, the one who put them in the stocks. They stay for them. That's not natural. Do you understand that? That's a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of these apostles. See, sometimes the Holy Spirit leads through difficulty rather than around it. Sometimes the prison that you feel like you're in today is the very tool that God will use tomorrow so God is leading. He's, the Holy Spirit is leading also through wisdom and logic. As we see the, the rest of the story unfold, uh, the jailer says to him, Hey, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, uh, apparently the, the jailer, he understands, like the, the girl who was demon-possessed got saved. She was freed in some way. And these guys have some sort of connection to God. Like, what, what, what do I need to do, right? There's no reason you should have stayed. There's no reason that you should have saved my life. What must I do to know the, the God that you serve like you know him? Because he's obviously the most high. And they said, read your Bible and pray every day. No. He said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and he set food before them. Yesterday, he put them in stocks. Today, he made them a burrito. That's a pretty radical change. That's what the gospel does, right? And he rejoiced, along with his entire household, that he had believed in God. Now, the next day comes around, but when it's day, the magistrate sent the police, saying, hey, let let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, well, they've beaten us publicly, uncondemned men. 
who are Roman citizens. And they've thrown us into the prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. You see, for Roman citizens, they were entitled to a fair trial. They were not allowed to be beaten without being condemned first. But they had assumed that these were Jewish men and that they were not Roman citizens at all. So the whole trial is a sham to begin with. There really is no trial. They just beat them, throw them in jail, and then want to turn them loose the next day and say, get out of here. Paul says, ah, no, we're Roman citizens. We're entitled to certain rights. Then the magistrates and those people in power realize, oh, we've got a big problem here. We're about to be at odds with the empire of Rome. So they come groveling on their hands and knees. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them, and then they departed. A couple of last things that I think are important here. Paul recognizes that um, that he has an opportunity to protect the church. Because this illegal trial has happened, if, if he exposes the fact that, that they were unjustly beaten, that, that affords the, this early church some protection because they're going to they're gonna think twice about coming against them again, right? Because he's got sort of dirt on them, if you will, right? So he's like, no, turn me loose publicly. I want everybody to see that you beat us unfairly, that we were not afforded a trial, that we've done nothing wrong. And we want you to come out apologizing and making sure that the whole city knows that this church has a right to be here. Now, sometimes the Holy Spirit just leads through being smart. (laughs) You know, one of the, the things that is God's common grace is intellectual ability to look at your life and your circumstances and make wise choices. God doesn't always want us to do stupid stuff for his glory, right? He gave you a brain for a purpose. And sometimes, guys, when you are praying, and you're like, Lord, I, I don't know what to do. I, I just, I need direction from you. And there's not any real clear leading from the Lord. Do what is wise, Use your brain. Use your intellectual ability to figure things out. Paul is just a brilliant, he would be a a hard guy to play chess with, right? He's just smart. He's thinking ahead. He's thinking about the church. So he employs his wits for the good of the church. The Holy Spirit uses their knowledge of the laws of Rome to provide protection for the church that has been established in Philippi. God uses here ordinary means to do extraordinary things. And by following the work of the Holy Spirit, Paul has now had influence in Philippi in this regard. God saved Lydia and her house, a wealthy business owner with land and space for the church to meet. Then on the other end of society's spectrum, a young enslaved gal who was demon-possessed, God saves her. Then he saves a Philippian jailer and his entire household. What started with a few ladies at a prayer meeting ended up a church with members of every layer of society meeting together to celebrate Jesus. Was that what he expected? No. But it was everything he'd hoped for. Because the Spirit was the one who was leading. 
So last month, we, uh, we went to Uganda to, to go and visit Oasis of Hope. And uh, it was one of those trips that I, I felt like was, was really critical for our church because of the change in leadership here and the relationship that we've had with, with Ugandans. And um, so we felt like it was really important to get over there. If, if I could, there's a green map in, in the slides, Jesse. If I could get you to put that green map up. It's a, a map of the, the western half of Uganda. You can see uh, on the right-hand side to the farthest right is Entebbe. That's where we land when we fly into Uganda. We went north over to Kampala and then took a right over into that, that blue square that's on the right-hand side of the screen. That is, oh, hey, I can, I can just come right here. So this right here is Mukono. From there, we drove down, followed this highway all the way down through here, um, to uh, Masaka, which is right here, and then down into Embarar, and then we visited each of these churches. We, we visited nine out of 14 churches in Uganda. Nine out of 14 churches that have been planted through Oasis of Hope in Uganda. Now, I'll, I'll just tell you right now, like there's a lot of work to do there to make those churches healthy. There's a, there's a lot of labor that needs to be done. They need biblical education. They need some training. Um, there's a lot of false doctrine that has kind of permeated the church, and there's a lot of those things. But uh, the work that we are doing there makes a difference, right? Uh, Jesse, can can you go back to the the map of? Uh, th- there we go. Here's Paul's trip. As, as you go through. You see, he stops at this city and this city, and we look at this map, and we look at the map on Uganda, and they're just points on a map. But not to Jesus. Those points on a map represent souls, represent people that God loves, that God is pursuing, that he's chasing down with the gospel for his glory. You see, the Holy Spirit led Paul to go to each of those cities, and do work there, and care about people there, in order that he might save those that he loves. Can we go back to the other map? And God loves the people in Uganda too. And he's working to lead us in partnership with Oasis of Hope and the churches that have been established there to continue to bring the gospel to each of those places. Listen. The Holy Spirit was given to us not so we could sit on our hands, but so that we could be on mission for God. That's the point. Each of those dots represent people that God wants to send us to in order that they might be established and equipped in the gospel. Listen, God gave us the Holy Spirit for the express purpose of living out his mission in the world. Some, like Paul, are called to missions throughout the nations. Others, like the apostles who stayed in Jerusalem, are called to the mission of God in their own city. But everyone is called to mission. If God gave you the Holy Spirit, he's got a purpose for that. And it isn't just so you could feel good about yourself. So that you might bring the gospel to those who have not heard it. Jesus said, I came to seek and save the lost. The question is, how will God accomplish that mission? The answer is, through those that are filled with the Holy Spirit, obedient to the Holy Spirit, and led by 
the Holy Spirit. That's how God will save. I want to give you just four quick tips, and then I'm going to have Mitch, you can come on up as I'm closing out. Four quick tips for being led by the Holy Spirit. First of all, if you want to be led by the Holy Spirit, you should know that the Spirit has already spoken. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 tells us that the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture. You want to be led by the Holy Spirit? The Spirit's already spoken. Do what God says in his word. It's just real simple. <laughs> if you do what God says in his word, you're being led by the Holy Spirit. Scripture, we're told in Hebrews chapter 4, is the tool, it's the sword that the Spirit wields in our hearts to help us decide what is flesh and spirit, what is soul and spirit. John 16 tells us that Jesus said that he, he would send the Holy Spirit to remind us of what he's already said. Right? So when we get into the Word, the Holy Spirit brings those things to remembrance in the moment of mission, in the moment of ministry, when we're trying to, to reach others for the kingdom. The Holy Spirit works. He leads through what we put into our hearts out of what the Spirit has already said. Second thing, get rid of the thing in hand. Um, sometimes I'll ask my kids, hey, can you do this chore real quick? Can you go wash the dishes or take out the trash or whatever, right? And they've got like their devices in their hands. And they're like, uh, in, in a minute, in a minute. Now, there's nothing more grating as a parent than that response. Right? You want quick obedience. But I, I wonder how oftentimes the Holy Spirit might be saying, Now's the moment. Here's the mission. This is your opportunity. Go here. Share here. Do this. But we've got something in our hand that holds us back. We say, in a minute, not quite yet, not at this moment. I got this thing to do. Go. Do. Obey. Be led. Third thing, commit yourself to God to be his witness. There are some within the kingdom of God who think that the only purpose of being saved is to come to church. By the way, you don't come to church. You are the church. You're the vessel by which God brings the gospel to the world. The point is not attendance. The point is being. And God has called you, his people, to be his witnesses. Have you committed yourself to that? Have you said, God, I'll go? Have you, have you prayed in the morning, Lord, show me today, where are you sending me? What's my mission field today in this moment? And lastly, but certainly not least, take a direction. I think oftentimes what keeps people, people from being led by God or led by the Holy Spirit is the fear of failure. They're like, I'm going to do it wrong. Can I just tell you, like, do something and God can steer you. But do nothing and you're impossible to move. Take a step of faith. If God is prompting you to share with that friend or call that family member, or God is prompting you to sit down with that coworker or have those folks over for dinner or meet that neighbor, 
Maybe God's prompting you to go to, to Uganda. We, we're praying as a leadership team that God would raise up a missionary who can go and dedicate themselves to teaching and instructing people in the scriptures in Uganda for a season. That's what we'd love to see. We think that's what's necessary there. Maybe, maybe God is going to raise up somebody here right now through the prompting of the Holy Spirit who will be qualified and equipped to do that work. But the question is, if he says go, will we? Father, give us humble hearts that are willing to be led by you. And we don't want to be like the, like the horse or the mule that has to be led about by bit and bridle. God, we want to be the faithful servant that you can, if you just shift your eyes to the side, we go, yes, Lord, I'm on it. I'll be there. God, give us that kind of yieldedness to the working of your spirit. You might be glorified, that your mission might be accomplished through us. We ask this in the name and for the glory of Jesus. Amen.